The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Okay, good evening, everybody. I'd like to welcome Sharon Fitzmaurice to the show. Sharon is a holistic wellness therapist, book author, public speaker, and podcaster. So welcome to the show, Sharon. Thank you very much for having me, Simon. Lovely to be with you. Yes, we finally got you on. Sharon was meant to be on a few weeks ago, but she's been very busy with her book release, her new book release. So it's we had to wait. You know, you have to wait for the best guests. Yeah, <laughs> I like to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So I have to tell the listeners that me and Sharon know each other a little bit as she is my elder sister, but not much, old, but not much older, not much older, no, no. not much older. So Sharon, how are you? How's everything? Everything is good now, Simon. Thanks a million. Yeah, we're um, coming to the end of the restrictions in Ireland. Well, we hope so. Anyway, we're not quite sure. Um, we have another week, so it has been a strange year to say nonetheless, you know, that it's just kind of changed all our lives. But we've adapted and again, doing all of these interviews and podcasts virtually. Well, I'd have to do it with you anyway that you're in Madrid. But um, yeah, it's changed our perception, I suppose, of the way we live and maybe what we could have done before we took it for granted. And now here we are ready to come out again for a bit of freedom in a few weeks, hopefully. Yeah. And the restrictions are ending like at the end of November. Is that the plan? Well, hope so. I think the um, say that we're meeting again this week to see just to make sure numbers are still coming down. It may still be at a level three where you can't meet in huge groups, you know, but um, it's coming up to Christmas. So that's going to be hard for people because they were hoping that after this last past six weeks that they would be able to kind of go back to what they considered normal life. So, yeah, we're not sure yet, Simon, what's going to happen. I read this morning, actually, that the the pubs probably won't be open for Christmas. Yeah, I don't know. It's, as I said, you know, it's probably for Christmas. If people were looking forward to meeting up with their friends and all of that. There may be restrictions, but at this stage, Simon, we really don't know because the numbers they're still not down to where they should be or where the government want it to be, like it is in many countries. So it's going to really depend on the next week. And then as we start going into the Christmas period, which is very normal for people to do is go into town, want to go shopping, meet up with their friends again. And if the numbers start rising, they may have to, you know, restrict the pubs and people going into them. So I'm not sure yet, Simon, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of similar for us here. I mean, the restrictions are supposed to end on the 30th of November, but I think they'll be extended. And my fear is that people will kind of just go back to the same old habits for Christmas and then we're going to have it bad again after Christmas. Yeah, I think that's kind of everyone is here. It's nearly they're kind of just expecting another restriction or a lockdown come in the new year I'd prefer if it wasn't that way because as a therapist I can't get to see my clients one-to-one and a lot of people are restricted in their movements you know with whether it's within counties or traveling abroad go and see family so yeah it affects everybody but I know it's global you know everyone's trying to do the best they can but when it was the first lockdown we kind of accepted a little bit more because we all wanted to do our part And now with the second restrictions, the second lockdown, you can see people getting a little bit uneasy about it. So it's affecting people 
all round, not just physically, you know, connecting with other people, but it's also affecting their own mental and emotional wellness. You know, they feel like they're so restricted and they can't do what they want to do or go and see who they want to see. So we've never experienced that in our lives. You know, and as you know, Mammy is 73 and she's never experienced that in her life. No. So, yeah, it's very strange. When was the last time you had an actual client like in person in your, you know, (laughs) a a real life person in my therapy room? Yeah, non-virtual. Yeah, when we came out of the um, first lockdown, it was in July. So I had July up until the whatever it was. I'm lost and even when we're where we are. Track of time. Yeah, it was a few weeks. Again, it was only a few weeks. And a lot of those clients I had to have moved, obviously, because of the first um, lockdown. And so I couldn't obviously see them physically. So what I chose to do then was set up support group, a free support group on Facebook to help people with their well-being. It was the next best thing for me, of course. It didn't suit everybody because not everybody is on social media. For some people, they might message me privately and they're going through a hard time. So you're there as much as you can. But it is extremely hard to really help a person over the Internet. You know, it's not the same as that physical contact and seeing a person in front of you and um, really being able to speak to them on that level and looking into their eyes, you know, because we're not even looking into each other's eyes on screen, really. We're looking at cameras and we have all these distractions. So, yeah, I'll be I'm looking forward to going back and seeing my clients, hopefully the week after next. That's good because if you can get to see them before Christmas, it'll be a good time as well, no? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because a lot of people do need support. And I think we've realized that even within our own circumstances that, you know, we're lucky enough to have family and be connected. But there's people that are on their own and they don't have that connection. So I think it's made me more aware of the isolation people feel in their lives, not just because of restrictions, but overall, generally, they just feel isolated. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, Sharon, so tell us, let's, you know, we'll we'll go back to where it all began and everything. So what were some of your earliest memories as a child? What do you remember? Um, What do I remember my earliest memories? Um, I remember uh, going for walks in fields, (laughs) Uh, going for walks in fields and having, I suppose, maybe the freedom that our kids don't have now that we could walk for hours and hours and hours in fields. And there was nothing really in the field. You might climb a tree. (laughs) You might build a house out of stones on the ground, you know. But it was about the adventure. It was about going somewhere where you kind of have that freedom and just chatting and imagination and all of those things and going places. You know, they they probably weren't that far away, but it seemed to us when we were small that we were traveling the world because that was your world. You know, and parents, I mean, that time parents didn't want you around their feet. They were like, go on, get out and and you could be gone all day. And so you had this sense of adventure that nobody stifled. But nowadays, parents seem to stifle things and they think it's for the well-being of their children. But maybe it's not. No. Well, I suppose I do understand that, like having two of my own now that are big, big kids. Mm. But um, when they were younger, we were lucky to live out the country and they had the freedom of the back garden, you know, Mm. which was a half acre, which you have to be for planning permission when you build out the country. (laughs) You know, so to them, it was a huge big field and we had dogs and cats and they had neighbors that were young. And so they used to hop the wall to each other. And that was brilliant. 
but not like what we used to do was go down the fields or walk back the roads and cycle back the roads because the roads got busier. The fields became more secure and that's because farmers couldn't allow people in because of insurance reasons. It all got very, you know, official. Yes, yes. And yeah, and I suppose parents became more overprotective of their children because um, our communities were getting bigger and bigger and there was strangers in it that we didn't always know. And for somewhere in our mind, we needed to know where our children were at all times. I don't know where that happened. Because I remember we didn't know, even know where we were. Don't mind our parents knowing where we were years ago. Yeah, I think, I think I think the the you know before Madeleine McCann, but the Madeleine McCann yeah. case kind of made people go, "Oh my God, it's not safe to leave my children and go to the yeah. neighbors." And so people became more afraid. I think that was to do with the media as well, wasn't it? Media coverage. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But again, I suppose it increased our awareness. You know that. We can't just let our children be out. It's, you know, that the world isn't always safe as much and all as we'd like to think that it is, you know, that we have to protect our children and guide them. Now, we can't do that all the time. As I have learned, you have to teach your own kids life skills. And, you know, we were lucky that they had mobile phones and they could text us and tell us where they were. But we didn't have that. So for us, it was a learning experience as well. But it's also taught us to teach our children to be aware you know, maybe to be a little bit more cautious about who they go with or who they don't go with and, you know, to check in and make sure they let their parents or whoever their caregiver is to let them know where they are. So, yeah, I suppose it, it just you have to bring a balance into it, Simon, really, don't yeah. you? You have yeah. to kind of give them freedom to explore their world, but at the same time say to them, you know, just be careful. Yeah. And, and you know, obviously uh, us as a family, we moved around a lot. We lived in a few different places. And I always say to people, you know, I feel like I have gypsy blood and, yeah. and I, I restless and that, you know, now I'm older, I'm not so keen to be moving around. But, you know, I don't I don't know that we inherit that from our parents or whatever. But what were your memories of moving around a lot? Um, yeah, people say to me, you know, um, especially um in the last few years, I suppose, because I'm more on social media and speaking to groups and people and people say, well, where were you born? Are you originally from Galway? And I'd say, no, I was born in Carlow, raised in Kildare and moved to Galway. <laughs> but in those places, you know, we lived in many places within Carlow and Kildare. And if we counted them all up, I think I was counting one day and it was something like 11 or 12 places before the age of 12. You know, so that's a lot. And again, you become used to something. But I think my earliest memory of moving, um, uh, well, the big memory it was when we were leaving Alan Wood and Kildare. And I really, I was kind of, I suppose I'd made friends. I was near, I was 11 and I was fearful of where we were going. But at the same time, I thought it would bring a new start for us in our own families, you know, and what was going on for us. And then when we moved to Galway, it was quite exciting. Of course it was. But at the same time, it was moving in, going into school. You're the new person. Not many people moved that time. No. You know, and even I was talking to people years later that um, I was in national school with, you know, at that age. And they remember us coming and we were like celebrities. <laughs> they said, moving in. <laughs> and I, We were the poor Kardashians. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't stop laughing. I just thought that was hilarious. And she said, you were like film stars moving in from another county, not even a country, but a county. And, you know, you were so cool and you were artistic. And I thought that's never the way I would have described yeah. us. But it's amazing how people's perception of a new family moving in 
but then it's to make friends because they already had their little friend group yeah. set up, isn't it? You have to go into a clique. And I remember myself, you know, starting in Comer School and being bullied for a long time because you're new and, and it's like anything new. Some people latch onto because it's cool, but other people kind of uh, rally against it because they're like, who is this person? And they're coming into our clique and so on. Even kids, they don't know they're doing it. So it can be quite tough. I mean, moving at a later age in your life. Oh, I think it can. Yeah, I think it's quite hard. Um, we don't realize it. You know, people think that children will adapt and they do adapt. They're very resilient. But again, I suppose maybe we had expectations that everyone would be really nice. We were probably not as confident as we thought we were. We were probably a bit shy. We had a different accent, even though we just moved across the country. But we had a very different accent. And I remember even the teachers and one teacher in particular used to um really get cross at me for not pronouncing my THs because in Kildare we used to say the bath, the bath, not the bath, you know, and you did, that was just the way we were. That's the way we spoke. So it really was an emphasis on the, my voice and the way I spoke. And I already wasn't a person that was able to speak up. So then when I was criticized for the way that I spoke, it made me go in more and not want to speak up. You know, so it had that effect on me for a while. And again, the teacher was only trying to get me to pronounce the words properly, you know, but at the time I felt like she was completely picking on me and everyone was looking at me and that made it 10 times worse. And then, of course, you got slagged, as you said, and bullied out in the um, playground, you know, for ah, you're only a blow in and you can't even talk. It just shows you, doesn't it, that nowadays... A teacher wouldn't really do that. I mean, a good teacher wouldn't kind of give somebody grief over their accent because there's so many accents. And when you consider a primary school in Currafin or in Tume or anywhere, there'd be so many different nationalities. So if the teacher was to start targeting an accent, there'd be problems. Yeah. Well, you see, that's it again, because remember, at the time, we were that only family moving into the school of people that were already from Galway. And it's not that the teacher particularly was making fun, but trying to point out that my pronunciation wasn't correct. But the kids just picked up that I was stupid, you know, and that's what they used to say. You can't even talk properly and you're, you talk funny and all these things. And then I started believing that I must be talking strange. I never noticed that. It affects your confidence too then, doesn't or, it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think for, uh, again, you know, and I think teachers are more aware of it now. But yes, things that are said in the classroom by a teacher um, have an impact on how the other students perceive their fellow students. And that can have an impact outside, you know, and that as, as adults, I think we all have to be more aware of the things we say and the way we say things to children, because sometimes they take it literally and sometimes they take it very personally. So, you know, it's like... They hold on to us. That's the thing. Oh, they hold on to us. You know, even just laughing. It's like um, when my kids were small, you know, and they'd come home with maths. And I was never great at maths anyway, but John would be great, my husband. And uh, we try and do it our way. And they were going, no, the teacher does it differently. And it didn't matter how we showed them how to do it. It was because the teacher said this is the way to do it. So they do look up to their teachers, you know, they look up to the whatever the teacher says as right, even though you're the parent, you feel like screaming your head. Yeah, off. yeah. Well, we had that we had that big problem. We moved to Spain, you know, and obviously the kids were younger. But once they started school and they were bringing the maths home, 
we were looking going, they teach maths differently here because they have a different way of doing it. Like when they're doing division and stuff, they, they put the things in different, the numbers in different places. And even me and Alex were going, like Alex obviously is Polish and she might have done it a little different to the Irish method. But I used to say to her, what way are they doing this? And it's not that it's wrong or right. It's just different. So yeah. but the, the students or the, your kids will say, well, that's the way the teacher does it. And they know, you know. Yes, so and they do. Yeah. And it's right because they have to follow what the teacher says. But, you know, sometimes they used to say, well, your teacher has a way of doing it and we have a way of doing it. Both ways are right, but you will find your way of doing it. And it's usually the way they're taught. So it goes for the same for everything in life. The more they get taught something, that's what a child will believe. Yes. So for us growing up, it was, um, you know, scouring the fields for hours with our friends and having that freedom was natural for us, you know, and it was what we believed everyone could do. And also moving around was what I thought all families did until you realised they didn't. Yeah, it was a normal thing. <laughs> yeah, it's normal. And it's yeah. normal for some families, depending yeah. on the profession of their parents. But yeah, when I came to Galway, it was like nobody was moving outside of their area. And now we have a community where everybody's from different counties, different countries. It's a global community. It's not just the people from here. Yes. And uh, like right now, we know a family from America and they, their kids could be, I suppose, called army brats. You know, they're, they're not brats, but that's the name for them. But the thing is, they are from Utah and Carolina around that area. But now they've lived in Spain. They've lived in Poland. They're in Slovenia now. And every three years they get a new post. And so for those kids, I mean, it's a stable job and, you know, the, the parents are with them. But it's hard kind of adapting and moving every three years because you know what's coming in that way. I think for us, the difference was we didn't know because when you're young, it's like, OK, everything starts getting packed and you're kind of what's happening. And then you're on the move again. Yeah. And I think there was that it was probably uncertainty. So when you said, you know, that we had that bit of gypsy blood maybe in us, you know, of going and there is that it is unsettling because. For me, I think when I moved into, which is now my home again, a real home, it's like it was very strange to think this is my home. You know, I remember touching the walls and the doors and that first night in the house. It was kind of like, is this real? Is this really my home? Because it was the first place I felt like, you know, that I could I stay here? And of course, I had my own family. So I wanted them to have that security. And because again, when we moved here, I was only a few years in Carrafin before I left again. So there was never that long, stable place for me until now, until I was, you know, 30 years of age, <laughs> waiting for that security. And, and it's it's really true what you say there. I think for lots of people like that, when you get your first home and it's your home, whether even though maybe it belongs to the bank. But, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but the thing is, you class it as your home and you're going to work hard to try and keep it and maintain yeah. it. But there's that feeling of, wow, this is stability. This is what it feels like, rather than not knowing where your future lies. Absolutely. And I think it is. And maybe it wasn't just about it being a home, but I wanted to create, <clears throat> excuse me, that place for my children that maybe I didn't feel I had in my own life. So the um, lack of security or lack of stability was within myself. And I knew that. Um, so I needed to feel like this was somewhere secure for me 
so I could make it a place of security for my children. So, yeah, as I say, everything is kind of within us ourselves, you know, because people live in flats all over Europe and apartments and they never own them. They rent all their lives and they never need to own anything. I think it's a real Irish thing that we have to own something, you know. Well, it's, it's peer be- pressure, isn't it? Because it's, you know, the thing is when people are socializing and at parties and stuff, sometimes the only thing that they can start talking about is the weather and, oh, and you bought a new house or you, where are you living and then what do you work at? And it's this kind of peer pressure and people kind of go, oh, no, no, I'm renting. But sometimes they feel bad because they say they're renting. Yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of going past that even now because... Um, you know, all over the world, it's changing. And I, I look at a lot of people from Europe and they'll never purchase, you know, they'll always rent. That's what they're used to. And that's part of their lives. But for Ireland, again, because the house prices are, you know, going sky high all the time. But the rent is it's just astronomical. So it's actually cheaper to buy a house now than it would be to rent for the rest of your life. So, again, it's to get on that step to being able to afford to put a mortgage in place for yourself, that's extremely hard. And as you said, you have to work really hard for it. You have to sacrifice a few things for a few years. But we had small children. Excuse me, Simon, but we had small children. So we weren't going out or doing anything anyway. So all the money went into the house and into the kids. So we didn't mind and we wanted to build a future for ourselves and the children. Yeah, and that's great. And so, Sharon, for you, what was life as a teenager like for you? Do you remember? Because you you said you arrived, obviously, we arrived when you were 11. So you had most of your teenage years in Currafin and, you know, around Tume. Mm. So, um, yeah, I remember going into secondary school and it was like a whole world away from national school. Um, like I have happy memories of the national school. It was just very short lived for me because I was only there for kind of two years. And um, I made some friends in national school that also went to the secondary school, the Mercy Convent um, in Tume. And it was a whole world of getting on a bus every day, traveling into school um, meeting different teachers, different classes. But what it opened up my world to was boys. Boys. <laughs> <laughs> it, it put you on the conveyor belt for boys. You were like, here I am. <laughs> I just couldn't believe there were so many boys, you know, and there was so many girls, but there were so many boys. And I was just like, oh, my God. But really what it was, it just it was like for me, it was like being in New York. Yeah, there was just bus after bus after bus of coming of young people to school, and they all were walking down the town to go to school. So you were always passing and catching somebody's eye or saying hello to somebody. And we weren't allowed out at lunchtime, so the evening was this big thing again of seeing everybody. And you might only see them from a distance; you wouldn't know who they are. But if they caught your eye, it's kind of like that again—that excitement. You know, it's like, oh my god, I wonder who are what bus are they yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. And the, the thing was as well, it's always funny how there used to be like the buses to Abbey, the buses to Currafin. And then if the the shams, if the tune people were going out with anybody or, you know, dating anybody from Currafin or Abbey, they'd walk them to the bus and say goodbyes. So there was always these long goodbyes at the bus. Or, as you said, you'd go to the other bus. You'd walk to the Abbey bus to say goodbye to your girlfriend and then try and get back to your bus. I know. Do you know what? It was It was such innocence, really. And what I even like that it was funny if somebody liked somebody else their friend would come over and say my friend likes you and he wants to go out with you and you'd go okay so but you might never see them again (laughs) (laughs) 
it was just you mightn't even know what they looked like okay no but you know it was just so funny it was so innocent you know it was it was just maybe to have a boyfriend or someone to have a girlfriend, whatever it was. It was very innocent. And well, um, it was to feel wanted, isn't it? I mean, when you're that absolutely. age, someone's yeah. interested in you. Yeah, absolutely. And again, for me, it was that thing to be noticed, I suppose, really. And I loved going to discos because I loved dancing. I just absolutely love dancing. Still do, still do. And still do. Absolutely. I think it's just a great expression of your soul and it just allows you to be who you are. So, yeah, for me, the discos were a brilliant outlet at that weekend. You know, the local discos in Currafin and it was a big, huge hall and people came from the city and all over the county to it. And just the music and the crowds and the sweating and people were smoking and there was no drink because it was all just minerals and chocolate bars. Unless you got drink before or something. <laughs> Which a lot of the older ones did. And then they came in late for the last half hour. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Looking to see what they're anyway interested in around. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So I do remember that the discos. Um God, what else do I remember? Did you stay in the Mercy for all your schooling? Or five years, five yeah. Years? I did my, yeah, I did my leave insert. And um, then I, what did I do? I have to think back, Simon, now. It's that long ago. Uh, you were in the tech, weren't you? Oh, yes, that's right. So obviously I had met somebody when I was in my leaving cert, a boy, and that did take my focus off school. It's something I regret a little bit, but again, it brought me on the path to where I am. But I do regret that I didn't study a little bit more. So I met a boy. I didn't study enough. I thought by some miracle when I got my leaving search results that I'd have passed everything. I got a quick shock. I can tell you that when I opened up the envelope. You're an eternal optimist. <laughs> very. I really thought by some miracle I must have passed everything. So, you know, I had met a boy and um, put my attention into him and not myself. And then so I had to make the choice what I was going to do afterwards. So I thought, well, I need to do something else, you know. So there was um, like a business secretarial course going on in the tech, which was in the local town as well. So I went to that and I was able to still get the bus in and out. And it was a great year because it taught me lots of other skills that a school can be very different than just what secondary school was. This was a place where you kind of chose maybe who you were going to be. Now you weren't with the same crowd you were for five years. And actually, uh, Barbara, a really good friend of mine now, she was in secondary school with me, but I wasn't really, really good friends with her until we did that year in the tech and we became best friends. Right. So that was a real big plus for me because it got you, it took you out of your normal circle, which you were used to, your comfort zone, I called it. And then it was you met and spoke to other people. So you learned a little bit more about them and about yourself as well. So I remember that. You were, you and obviously in there, in that course, you were a tighter knit group because there was probably only a few girls doing it, was there? Well, there was girls, yeah. There was, no, there was, I can't remember how many was in it. It was a big classroom. I know another girl, Cecily, she was a good friend of mine in the Mercy and she did it as well. And there was others, there was lovely people in it. But of course, you always find one or two that you're really going to become friends with. And um, so that was, yeah, it always stood to me. I always thought to myself, I never wanted to be a secretary. Yeah. But it stood to me because um, you learn typing skills, which was a big thing one time, you know. And um, you learn typing skills. But those typing skills, I'd never really used them as a secretary because I never did that. 
But it was years later, I thought everything I've ever learned has stood to me later on because I had to write a book. And of course, we used um, a laptop or a type. We didn't have typewriters anymore. We used a computer keyboard and I was able to do everything twice as fast because I had the typing skills. Yeah, you had the foundation skills just to yes. brush up yeah. on them. Yeah. yeah, that's why I say to people, sometimes you do things in life and you go, oh, I really, I wouldn't do that. But later on, you'll find that you'll use those mm, skills. For sure, for sure. You know, so yeah. I think nothing is ever wasted. And at that time, it was probably just something for me to do until I figured out what I really wanted to do. And I had no clue. And I was only talking to a guy the other day, he's only in his 20s. And how do any of us know at 15, no, 16, 17, know. 18, what we're going to do? We have no idea. No. So when you left school, you know, after doing the secretarial course, what, what did you want to do? What was in your head? Do, did you think I'm going to get a job with these skills or you had another idea? I definitely didn't want to get a job with those skills. OK, OK, OK. <laughs> because after a year of doing it, I thought there's no way I could sit in an office and type all day for somebody. It just wasn't me. But at least I had that skill. And, you know, there was other skills. There was um, book work and finance and business and different things that was involved in it. But still, none of it jumped out to me. So I had been working in Dunn stores part-time well since going to school kind of from junior cert so from about 16 years of age I'd been working part-time so I continued having that job while I was going to school that was probably part of which Duns in Terryland stores no in Air Square in Air Square yeah right in the center of right the city in the center. and uh, yeah we worked long hours and met some good people in there as well and got great experience from it you know dealing with people um, money skills, stock taking, merchandising, all of those skills got from part-time work and it gave me a sense of responsibility, but it also allowed me to know that if I worked for something, by the end of that week, I got a pay packet and it was like winning the lottery. Even though you'd worked really hard for it, it was getting that brown envelope because there was no into your bank that time. It was in, you got it through with your pay slip and it was a little brown envelope and sometimes it was very little because you might only work three hours you know but other weeks you could work a lot more hours so I continued working part-time in Dunn's and um, I had moved up to Galway at this stage Simon so that was at 17 years of age I had left home which when I think about it now I have a 21 year old and a 19 year old living at home and I can't imagine any of them have moving out at 17 years of age and making their way in the world. It's a different world now. I mean, people don't want to let go of their children so easily. No. And again, because it's, it's nice to keep people young before they have, because you're going to have that responsibility for the rest of your life. Once you start earning yourself, which I did at 16, that was it. I was earning then. I had to continue earning for the rest of my life because you nearly take on that responsibility. And you know, our parents didn't have no, money no. to give anybody. Most families didn't. You know, everyone had to go out and get a part-time job. When we were young in the 80s and 90s, everybody nearly had some kind of a job unless their family were, you know, well off enough to give them pocket money or spending money. Were you in Duns for a long time, a couple of years or? Well, part-time, yes. And then I did get a full-time job with Eason's and Eason's is the bookshop that was in Galway City. I remember you working in Eason's, yeah. Yeah. So that was like a full-time job and um, it was lovely because you were surrounded by a world of books. And again, it was a new store in Galway. So we were all hired as the first staff members there. So we were all starting from scratch. 
uh, very exciting getting the store ready, all of that, meeting people. And again, having all the um, experience I already had from Dunn's, you know, it was I came into this working place kind of not as a novice, but kind of somebody with experience, you know, at maybe what, 18, 19 years of age. Yes, yes. And did you ever take a job that you only lasted a day or two that like was terrible? No, never. N- yeah. You, you didn't really that time because jobs were not they were hard. They were hard to come by, but it was hard to get a job that paid you. But it was hard to get a full time job as well. So you kind of valued it more. It kind of brought me back to the time when someone got a job, you know, and they'd stayed there until they got their pension. There was no such thing as that in retail as such. But you did value your job and you valued your money because you wanted to you had to pay your rent. There was no credit cards as such or anything like that for us. So there was nothing to fall back on. So only what you earned is what you had. That's all you had. And if you were lucky enough to be able to save a few, Bob, you were brilliant. But yeah, whatever you were earning was to feed you, to put a roof over your head, paying your rent, and uh, more importantly, to go out at the weekend. Yeah. So when you like you were living in Galway City that time, so what do you remember about Galway from that time? Um, I remember a, a very sociable city, um, still is, crowds on the streets, um, summer especially Keys Street I lived um across from the Keys pub over um a restaurant and um imagine it was so noisy and I took no notes because I was younger that time you loved it (laughs) I loved it yeah and not that we were out all the time but and I wasn't as much that time but we did go out but again it, it kind of did focus around the pubs and nightclubs and because that's the age I was you know and that's the age people were doing things but it was very noisy, but it was very eclectic. There was buskers always on the street, as you know, busking in your youth. Buskers, there was always music, there was always festivals on. You know, there was people from all over the world lived in Galway. They visited Galway for the races. It was quite exciting to live in the city as a young person. Of course, I didn't actually explore it enough mm. when I think back because you were working, you were living there, you take it for granted. But I suppose as I get older now and I'm not living in the city anymore, it is an exciting city. You know, yeah, it's yeah. nice to go in there, but it still has that small feel. Yeah, about it, it has a great small kind of town feel and yes. great culture. What was yeah. your, did you have a local bar? Was your, what was your local bar? Um, well, there was a bar in Wood Key that we used to go to called Bar in Holla. Oh, Bar in Holla, yeah. There. yeah, yeah. 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 And um, that one, and the keys, I suppose, for music. Was Barnahalla with that? Was that Max Wiggins first? No, no, Max Wiggins is across the oh, road. Across from the road it. from it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. used to actually live beside Max Wiggins as well yeah. in Woodkey, and I used to live over the Huntsman Pub. <laughs> Out just outside yeah. the city. So everywhere we lived, there was a pub close by, <laughs> believe it or not. I don't know why they have flats over pubs or beside them. <laughs> well, they're handy. You're, nowadays, you'd be looking on the daft.ie and saying, I think I see a pub there. Let's get that one. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was different times. And did you, um, so you went to, you were in the UK for a while too, weren't you? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, the relationship I was in at the time um, that was one of the reasons I moved up to the city um, was to live with my then boyfriend. And um, he had wanted to travel a bit more. And I thought that would be great. He had opportunities to do. So we were going to the UK and he had to stay working for an extra month with the company that he was leaving. And I'd already handed in my notes and yeah. said I was giving my date. So I had to go. So I actually went to the UK um, on my own to find a place to live, a job, 
And it was the first time I had traveled anywhere on my own outside of Ireland. But as the only country I'd ever been to, you know, I'd never been to the UK before that and I'd gone on holidays abroad. No such thing. We'd gone to Wicklow on our holidays, Simon. That was Always. It. That was the first. Yeah. So what I found out when I went to the UK and I lived there then, it was um, hugely um, liberating meeting again new people because I'm always about the people. But being able to find my way, get a job, get a place to live, it showed me that I could be independent too because I'd never been independent up to that. Even though I'd been earning my own money, I was either living at home or living with my boyfriend. And this is the first time I did anything on my own. And um, I think our relationship wasn't going well really anyway. And that made me realize that, you know, maybe I can do things on my own. So I made loads of new friends and he came to me. What was the town? We were living in Sutton. Sutton, okay. Yeah. And um, I got a great job. And it was through somebody we knew, a mutual friend. And they had me waitressing, first of all. And uh, I'd never waitressed before. So there was lots of hours in your feet. Um, running all the time, met loads of people, nice and not so nice. But the tips, oh, my God. You Amazing. just have to wear these little aprons with pockets, you know, for the order forms, yeah. whatever, or take the orders. And by the end of the night, you could hardly carry it. It was wow. so big with coins. So we could put all our coins out on the table by the end of the night. And you could come home with 70 sterling in tips in one night. That's crazy. Oh, my God. It yeah. was, again, it was it made kind of your whole night, even if you got shit from customers yeah. or if it was a hard night or you were so busy. By the end of the night, when you counted up all that money and said, oh, you know, yeah. I kept smiling. I did the work. It was good service. You know, it's, it's nice because even I remember when I was busking, even though you'd get small money and everything, it's great counting it. <laughs> oh, I loved counting it. So again, all those things taught me something. But then they asked me to work in the bar during the day and to run the bar. So I was also running the bar during the day, going home for an hour and coming back and waitressing for the whole evening until maybe one or two in the morning. And I did that, I'd say, six days and six nights in the week. Wow. So it was, yeah. And I didn't feel tired. Um, I love the experience. I love the people because, again, there was people from all over the world working there, Irish, English, Indian, American, Canadian, and a lot of them were coming to just have experience. One of the guys was actually a doctor from India and he rebelled against his family and came to the UK not to be a doctor, but to work in a restaurant just for a year. He wanted something different. Oh, yeah, because he, his whole life was about education, education. He hadn't got to experience freedom. So we were laughing, going, so you'll never find freedom when you're working in a restaurant because no. it's all hours. But it wasn't that. It was the people that he met and it gave him a different you know, outlook on life. So we stayed over there for a while. And when we came back, we moved back to Galway and um, the relationship um, didn't go well, <laughs> put it that way. As sometimes um, happens, yeah. Yeah, it didn't go well. I, we had got married and um, it didn't work out well. And I think that was um, through lots of things, but we were young and we were probably trying to be 40 when we weren't even 20. Yeah. yeah. Do you know that kind of a way? And I suppose that had a huge impact on me as well, self-confidence and all of those things. And then here I was, landed for the first time uh, again, um, out on my own, but really out on my own. Back in Galway. Back in Galway. And I shared, I went in actually and I 
shared a house or an apartment downstairs in the basement with a girl who was from Toom Town, believe it or not, but I'd never knew her before that. And she was so good to me because I really had nothing. I was, um, oh, I get mixed up and everything now. Yeah. But anyway, I remember sometimes I didn't have hardly any money. I had nothing to eat. And um, she was very good to me, you know, and she said, you can pay the rent next week and the hours mightn't be in it at work or whatever was going on. But yeah, I remember it was a lot of struggles, not just, you know, yeah. financially, but mentally and emotionally it was a lot of struggles. Of course, this guy I know from Ackle, um, he's Owen Finnegan was our first guest, but he's a friend of Owen's as well. And his name is Rob Callahan. And he always says to me to this day, every time I, I meet him, like or talk to him every six months or something that he he always says, you had a sister working in Glenlow Abbey, didn't you? I oh, remember yeah. your sister working in Glenlow Abbey. And I said, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he's always talking about that. So you were in Glenlow Abbey for a while, weren't you? Yeah, I was in Glenlow Abbey then. Um, I, so I had been in retail all of those years, kind of, you know, up until um, I went to Glenlow Abbey. And for me, even going for the interview, and one of my best friends now is Siobhan. And Siobhan was the front of house manager. And okay. she was the lady doing the interviews. And I remember seeing her standing up at the top of the room and she was wearing this red dress, you know, there was a bit of black in it. And I thought she had it all. She had the confidence, the dress sense, the panache, the way of speaking. She had everything. Glamorous and woman. I, yeah. Yeah. And I would never be like that, you know. And we were in a room and they decided they would give us a kind of a personal, personality psychological test, yeah. you know, which was yeah, so strange. Yeah. And I remember even lots of people, it was girls beside me and fellas beside me and they'd worked in hotels in London and I had no experience in a hotel at all. So anyway, I went for the, did the test, went for the interview and I thought, well, I'm not going to get it. And I was called back for a second interview and I was offered the job and I couldn't believe it. So years later, you know, after myself and Siobhan worked together, but became really good friends, I said, you know, what was it at the time that out of all these people? And she said it was your personality and it was the fact that you had worked extremely hard right. all the time, she said, you know, and you could see that you had an eagerness. And I am. I'm quite curious. And she, she only said it to me recently. If I don't know something, I will say yes to it and figure it out along yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I'm doing podcasts. I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> but that's good. Yeah, you you have that kind of bravery where you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll I be fine. I'll be fine. And you jump into it. And then I learn quick. And I, I learn by doing as I did with everything. So Siobhan would show me something. And it was computers. And we had never used computers. But she said, and are we able to use a computer? And I said, oh, I am. I am. I didn't even know how to switch it on. <laughs> so when you were like, when you were working there, you did you mainly work front of house or were you doing different jobs? No, front of house always. So um, I was always put out with the clients because I remembered everybody's names. That's one of the things they were always really impressed by. If there was weddings or even one of the Burke weddings was on, they wanted me out the front because I remembered everybody's names. And I was always very courteous to the clients and um, the people staying the residence. We had great staff members. It was extremely hard. Um, hotels are a hard place to work, yeah. you know. No matter what's going on behind the scenes, you have to put a smile on your face and greet your guests as if it's the best moment of your life that they've just arrived. The whole second floor could be flooded, but you have to be like perfect. Yes. Everything's great. Yeah. yeah. And they paid their money to stay in a lovely place 
So it's not their problem if there's a problem behind the scene. Was the Glenlow Abbey a five-star hotel at that time? or Yeah, it was the only five-star hotel in Galway at the time. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so it was a lot. During the races, in Galway races in particular, you'd all the horse trainers and a lot of elite guests coming to stay from all over the world and um, going out to spend lots of money. There was money galore during yeah, the race yeah, time and i never seen so much money in all my life. Do you remember any spe- any guests that stick out in your memory? Um, well, we had Ellen Barkin. She was married to Gabriel Byrne. Byrne yeah. Um, there was Gabriel Byrne's brother, Patrick. Is this Patrick Bergen? I can't remember. Oh, now. yeah, Patrick Bergen was in... Uh, he was in Sleeping with the Enemy. Sleeping with, with the Robert. Enemy, that's right, yeah. Oh, yeah, we had people from all over the world. When you were working in the hotel that time, was it also very stressful? Were you able to unwind when you went home or was it a kind of like seemed like a 24 hour job? Um, yeah, it was very different. I suppose when you're younger, you don't take much notes. We just get on with it. It was um, there was probably a lot of mental stress in it. Physical stress you kind of get over when you're younger, but it was probably the mental stress of it. And I suppose really I had hidden a lot of my um, mental on wellness for many years because um, I had um, huge anxiety and a lot of depression that nobody knew about. I've obviously written about it since in my book. But um, yeah, I was nearly, I was just after when my, the first marriage broke up, I got into a very bad place and um, I wanted to take my own life. And that, um, I suppose, I hid from everybody as well. Again, you know, Simon, there's a huge amount of shame around mental health issues, you know, and that's what, one of the things I emphasize in my own podcast and with any of my groups that um, I want to speak about it more. So for me, it's quite hard to talk about that time because it's nearly like I have no more than our childhood. There's certain things you block out to keep yourself safe, to keep yourself functioning so that you can get on with the normal day to day stuff, because if you try and deal with it all together, you won't be able to, you'll be overwhelmed by it. When was the period in your life when like you felt the lowest and did you understand what it was and how it was affecting you? Um, I probably had felt low for a long time, but it was this particular time. It was just shortly after I split up and I was trying to go out there and be with my friends and do it all. But I was going back to a, a little box room that I lived in and I had to be by myself then. And there was no distractions. So, as I said, it was quite hard on a lot of nights, but in one night in particular, and it was nothing that there was nothing extraordinary about that day that, you know, could have triggered it or would have triggered it. It was just there. And as the thoughts became so, my physical body was actually just exhausted. And I remember just falling to the ground and the pain felt so bad. That's the only way I can describe it. It's like I was being tortured. It was like I was burning from the inside out and we were living. What age were you at that time? Um, 23 going 23, on. 23, okay. So still very young. Yeah. But again, I thought I was so much older. I left home at 17, been working since I was 16. So I thought I'd lived my life as such. And um, it was a three-story building and I was going to go out the window and I was in the third floor. And that was the only way I thought I could end this pain. It, it wasn't to me even about the mental stuff or the emotional stuff. It was about the physical pain that I felt in that moment. And then I, <laughs> part of me then also went, but what if I went out and I fucking survived? Yeah, well, well, I suppose that's a question when it's three stories, you're like, maybe it's not high enough. Maybe I need to be higher. Yeah. But I, yeah, I really thought that if, you know, knowing my feckin' look, I jump out and only break a leg or 
you know, whatever. And I'd still have to continue and tell everyone why you went out the window. And that was nearly worse. So, yeah, I found somehow the will to carry on. And as a result of that, and, you know, that's why I'm always saying to people, they might think it's a way out. Um, it's not because that's it's it's final. Once you're gone from this world, there's no coming back. But it's the people left behind that are going to have to deal with it. I now know there's other ways. I didn't at the time until because I survived it. And I realized that I truly wanted to live, that I want to make it a better life. There was nobody controlling my life any longer, like I had believed they had been for the last 23 years before that. Now I was in control of my own life and I had to change it. So I had to choose how I was going to change that day by day. That was the hardest part of living for me, Simon, because then I was the creator of my own destiny after that. It was my responsibility. Was that something that, you know, from that night or that day when that was happened or nearly happened, was, did it was it a long time kind of over a space of months or years where you years. years where you kind of developed your your way of a coping mechanism? Yeah, it was years. It was from childhood. It was um dealing with stuff that we had to go on, go through in our own lives, trauma, and also as teenagers and up to adulthood. And it was became a way, a pattern of behavior for yeah. me because that's all I knew. And remember, as I said, children adapt to things. And when you keep showing them the same thing, they'll do it the same way. So that became my way of masking it all, not talking about our feelings, yeah. um, not sharing how you were feeling or what was going on in your lives because nobody was doing it. No. Nobody was doing it that time. There was no avenues that time because, I mean, you know, nowadays there are so many different organizations that help people and uh, even civilian people will call them who have no training, no to look out for certain signs in children and teenagers and so on. But that time there was nothing. And, and there was nothing on television about it either. You might see things happening, but there was no helplines. There was no advice, nothing. Well, we didn't have access to phones. Yeah. You know, don't mind that there was a local call box. And if you were lucky enough to have a phone in your house, but that was restricted to be used as well. Um, but just even who do you ring, you know, and even that time, we were lucky to be healthy enough. We didn't have to go to the doctor very often. And if we did, maybe the doctor would have been an avenue to discuss. But I know people that did go to whoever and they were told kind of to keep quiet, not by their doctors, yeah. maybe, but by family members or yeah. somebody else to keep quiet, stop talking about it, get over it, push it under the carpet. And that, again, was at the time around the 70s, 80s and 90s Ireland, you know, led from their history it's a, there's this always this secret shame in ireland isn't it and you know as you said brush things under the carpet and you know it, above all else regarding your mental health and everything that comes second to protecting the family name yeah absolutely that's it and you know we're we're talking about it even now and there's so much out there but it's still there's still shame associated with um sexual abuse with mental health issues, with domestic violence. You know, I work with clients of all ages and they are still afraid to speak up about it. It's stigma. So that's the 2020, moving into 2021. And it's, I don't know, it probably always will be there, but it's for us to help. You know, for me, it is like if somebody said to me, if you just take this step, this is what will happen. But of course, nobody did. And I didn't know who to talk to. And I never told anybody about what went on in my life 
until um, I wrote my book in two years ago. You know, that was the first. That was your way of releasing it. Well, yeah, I had released it. Obviously, years before that, I had gone to my own counseling and therapy and everything else like that. But it was still like you, it was your shame to carry almost. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing. I think there's so many people that as they get older and, you know, they, they have years and years of these this torture in their minds about things that have happened to them, whether it be sexual abuse or suicidal thoughts that they never spoke to anybody about. Years later, they feel like they're a bit braver or or even that person who was the abuser or the person who tortured them has gone. So they feel like their captor is not around. But the thing is, even for people in their 50s and 60s to talk about these things is still really difficult. Well, what you're doing is you're bringing up the emotional trauma as the child, even Mm -hmm. though you're the adult. You know, I always say that to people. Any trauma that has affected us is held on to in cellular memory. Our cells hold on to the trauma of it. So even though you might think mentally and emotionally you've dealt with the trauma and you've spoke to your counselor and you've done everything, and then you could be going along in your life and everything is fine, five years later, something could trigger a response yeah. by your body. Your body will freeze maybe as it froze as a five-year-old child. Yeah. yeah. And you'll go, well, what's that got to do with it? Because we don't understand that the body is relating to all of the subconscious memories that we hold on to. So for me, it's like if I think about the abuse that I went through, I can see it clearly and I see everything involved in it, but I'm detached from it now. Whereas if I couldn't even connect to that years ago, because it brought up everything, that fear in my body, freezing, that feeling of not safe, being safe, you know, and always having to run or whatever it was. And even when it came to, um, you know, thinking about taking my own life, even that, it was like I was so afraid that I would get to that lowest point again. It, it was, it's horrifying. And that's why you said I wrote in the book, it's like, I was running, but what was I running from? I was running from myself, but you can't run from yourself because you're always going to be there. I think something that's interesting as well is that point when you said about your lowest point. If you go beyond that lowest point and move forward, you still maybe haven't dealt with your problems or you're dealing with them them in a small way. But sometimes to go backwards, like regression, you're thinking, if I go back to that spot, I'm putting myself in danger, so I can't do that. Yeah. And you know what? I can understand that there are a lot of people that can't. As I said, I would have blocked out lots of memories when you asked me about childhood memories. Yeah. I kind of I was trying to think, oh, Jesus, I'm not going to answer that question. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them aren't good. You yeah, know? yeah. And it's not that I choose to only remember the bad thoughts, but they are the most dominant memories of my mind, unfortunately. Yeah, they supersede uh, the other ones. Yes. And. That's why I said sometimes I nearly I used to fight with myself and go, but remember the good things. And there's only a few. There is very few things I remember good. But that doesn't mean that there weren't loads of good things. Yeah. But, but, but it's, the, it's nice too. I mean, the thing is, when you look back and of course, as you said, if there are more bad memories that stick out, the, the point is then when you look at it from a more positive approach, it's nice to remember things that come back to you and you go, oh, I remember that girl. and yeah. I remember that moment, even though there might be less of them. Yeah, but there were, there probably was as many good memories. But again, because the trauma took over such my, so much of my life, they were the things that if I went back, that's what I could remember. So as I said, now I'm kind of detached emotionally. I can still see them and I honoured the child that was there, but it doesn't grip me like it used to. And I can remember things that even 
if people are talking about different things at Christmas, like I remember what Santi might have brought me one year. I remember a box of Colleen sweets on the counter. Or, yeah, I remember Mammy's apple tarts, Mammy's singing. You know, there's lots of lovely things I remember and great memories and fighting and killing kids, playing and all those things. But yeah, it's 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 I don't dwell on it anymore. I, I'm grateful for what I do remember. And people think this is very strange when I say that, but I'm also grateful for the bad experiences because they've taught me a huge amount about who I am and what kind of a person I want to be now. You know, and I think that was, again, was a choice after, as I said, that dark night where I just didn't want to be anything or I didn't want to exist as I was. Yeah. And, you know, I've always had this thought in my head that you this this thing that always appear I, I always think of it and it's always there that you you can't have light without dark and Absolutely. the thing is you know to for a light to illuminate anything there has to be darkness so yeah. the point is that we can't live in this world that's just brightness and everything's wonderful because then you don't appreciate things and you you take them for granted but when you have when you can compare things against darkness and of course, there could be lots of that in people's lives. They're the things that really stand out wonderfully. And you kind of go, oh, my God, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is something better. I just have to get through this sticky patch or this muddy period, you know. Yeah, well, I always think if I hadn't got to that lowest point and started choosing differently for myself, first of all, um, it wouldn't have led me on to the path of where I am now helping others. With the holistic therapy and obviously becoming an author and so on, how did you get started with holistic therapy? How, talk me through it. Well, what started really was at that time um, after I chose to live, um, I started practicing mindfulness and meditation without realizing it was called mindfulness and meditation. You know, I as, had to as really, a hobby. Well, to keep me getting up in the morning right. and helping me to stay in bed and go to sleep, you know, and functioning throughout the day and the night because I was living very moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day. That was a coping mechanism I had to find because if I stopped and dwelled on how I was really feeling, I was afraid I was going to go back to that really dark place again and choose differently. So I had to keep making a choice every hour, just get through this hour just get through this. Notice everything good, but notice how you're feeling, but don't dwell on it. Try and let it move through you. So it was only years later I found out it was called mindfulness and meditation. And um, so I started um, in the practice of meditation. I started going deeper and deeper into it. Absolutely loved it. I always say it opened up parts of my heart and brought me into the darkest caverns within it where I actually allowed myself to sit with what I was feeling and what I was carrying. It was hugely painful at times, but I kept saying to myself, you're safe now, you're an adult, you know, you are fine. You've chosen to go into your heart and into your mind. And I listened to my body, where my body was carrying any of that trauma. Um, as I was doing that, I was starting to make space for new things to come in, for new opportunities to come in. But I never really understood that. Like when you say you face those fears and those things, was that kind of like being in a bubble and facing your demons, but they couldn't touch you now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I used to imagine in my heart that it was um, you'd like it was an opening, you know, and that you'd walk in and there was different doorways. And today... I might ask, which doorway is the right doorway for me to go in today? What am I strong enough to deal with today or to heal? 
and the doorway might open and it might be something from my childhood and I would sit with it that day. But as you said, it can't harm me now because I'm the observer. I'm just sitting, watching the experience and how does that experience make me feel now as an adult and how does the child or how did that child feel with it at the time and how do you feel towards the person that's, you know, involved in this trauma? How do you feel about them now? So it really got me to understand my own perceptions of the child versus the adult. And if some of the child stuff was still caught in here, you know, and what that child may need now. And that child usually needed to know they were safe. So as an adult, you say to your child self, you are safe. Look at you now. You're here. You know, everything is okay. You made it. It's all right. So it was a process of doing all of that. It's It's retrospective. Yes, absolutely. And it was sitting in stillness with myself and not being afraid of my own thoughts or feelings. That was huge for me. And then it opened up even more where, you know, I used to get so excited. I'd come down. I could actually feel like neurons sparking in my mind, like things where I was developing new pathways in my mind. It wasn't just the same old neurons firing all the time, doing the same old story, repeating the same patterns. It was like now I was creating these new pathways and my mind was going, you know, I used to come downstairs and go, oh, my God, I'm so excited. You were looking forward to it. Oh, I was so excited. I used to love, I used to call them the journeys of my soul because it discovered a part of me I never knew existed. Did you ever have like, you know, when you'd have those mindfulness sessions and of course, as you said, you know, you, you had those moments, you look forward to them. But did you ever have one at the beginning or through it that, like literally shook you to your core and made you say, I, I don't want to do this anymore. No. So it, it you always had a, a better feeling after doing them. Always during and afterwards. And even though some of them might be very deep and profound healing, you might cry through it, but mm. it's tears of release and tears of joy that you're yeah. finally able to let that go. So if anyone looked in and maybe saw you doing this, they might think, Oh Jesus, don't do that. It only makes you sad. But it's not, it's hugely healing and it's making you sit in a a more present and loving way with yourself. That's really what it is. It's not all hippy dippy stuff, you know, it's 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 a really good practice for getting to know who you are, what you want to heal, what you want to let go and what you want to now create. You know, it's a beautiful tool that everybody should have in their lives. Well, I mean, you know, like there's so many people in denial about things that have happened to them or things in their family. And what you're really doing there is you're facing those thoughts and those fears and you're confronting them. And sometimes it might be scary and sometimes it might be emotionally draining. But as you said, once you do it, there's that certain release and you can move on with your life. No. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose even now as a teacher and facilitator for meditation, mindfulness, Reiki, all of those, it's okay saying that, but people are not sure how to do it and they're not used to sitting by themselves or, you know, they want something profound to happen where nothing might happen. It might just be sitting there and you're watching your thoughts passing. As I say, it's like you're sitting at a train station and you keep watching the train going by and going by and going by and they're your thoughts. And then you don't keep jumping onto the train, you know, where do you want to go? The train will stop as you will connect to the thought, the same thing in your mind. Where do you want to follow? What thought do you want to follow? Or do you want to keep following every thought and constantly your mind is rambling? So sit there, observe. And only when you want to be the passenger or the driver, hop on that train and direct it where you need it to go. 
There's some things we do need to listen to because we get many ideas and inspirations when we're sitting quietly and we're thoughtful or like that lovely daydream and you'll come up with an idea and go, oh my God, or in our dream state, we'll wake up and you'll say, Jesus, that's brilliant. It's again to put our energy into those lovely thoughts and ideas, but we don't give ourselves time or space. Everyone's in a rush. Everyone's trying to get something done instead of allowing themselves to be. Like you said, with the train go by, you have to be more focused on one thing. Like even if it's solving one problem, get that done, move on to the next one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I think that's what a lot of people would say is they have so many things to do. And I said, but you can't do them all together. So even if you have a list of things to do, pick the thing that's most important, the priority. And once you get that done, you'll feel good about yourself. And it's amazing how you'll get all the other things done. But then you'll realize is, well, is it really a priority? Do I really have to get that done today? Because if we understood that what the priorities are in our lives, the first one is ourselves. Because if we don't look after ourselves, we can't look after or love anybody else properly. So we have to be a priority in our own lives. And everything, believe it or not, comes second after that. Yeah, of course. Well, I think it's important because it doesn't matter what industry you work in. If you're not strong as the facilitator, whatever it is you're doing, you can't give the best of yourself to the person, can you? No, not at all. And that goes the same for parents or teachers or nurses or street workers or whoever it is, you know. Everybody has the self-care is huge. But again, it's like we shouldn't feel guilty about giving ourselves time or space. And that's becoming more apparent now because of all the mental health issues. And then again, it leads on to physical issues. So it's becoming more apparent in the world. People are talking about it a lot more is you need to look after yourself, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually and emotionally, not just one or the other. Yeah. And tell me, so when you kind of like were doing your mindfulness and you were thinking about getting into this more, more than, let's say, a way of self self-healing and you started to look at Reiki and different things, was was it hard to know in what direction to go? Because like there's so many different types of holistic therapies nowadays, isn't there? Yeah. Well, for me, I always was guided kind of by my instinct, that intuitive feeling, my gut feeling. And again, if I felt a real big passion for it. So mindfulness and meditation, it wasn't because of the names. It was just a way of me living during that time when I had to experience whatever I had to experience. And then I wanted to train in them when I realized what they were. So I thought, well, yeah, these are, I wanted to learn more, not just my bit, but I wanted to learn all different types of meditation practice because there are so many. So I did that. And that led me on to Reiki. Now, I had heard about Reiki. I didn't know a huge amount about it. I just heard that it was kind of a gentle hands-on therapy. And I just wanted to experience it. There was something about it that really kind of was drawing me towards it. So my first actual physical session was with a local girl, Mags Fury. Okay, yeah, Mags. Yeah, in Corbelly. And I went to her for my first Reiki session. And it was just so powerful. I could feel the energy in my body kind of like a thousand times more than I could have when I was meditating. I could actually feel it shifting and moving. I could feel blocks as if you were taking a big block of gunk out and everything was flowing, letting like a river flowing. I could feel that within myself. And it, what it felt like, and that's the name of my chapter now in this book, it's coming. I came home to myself. I actually found a part of myself that I had never connected with. And it was like after that day, 
I just felt like everything opened up completely. So I was so passionate then. I wanted to learn Reiki. I didn't want it. It wasn't about anybody else. It was only about me. And I wanted to learn more about it. And I did. I studied with Mags. I went on to do my master's in it. And then in 2008, I decided I would set up um, practice as meditation facilitator, Reiki practitioner. And again, only doing it around my dining room table, you know, having my little therapy space up here just for a few people. And it is just snowballed and snowballed and snowballed. And, and I see there, like, obviously, I know what Reiki is, but the other one, Sekim, what, what's that? Well, Sekim is another form of energy therapy. So Reiki is based on the physical more so. And Sekim would be based on the mental and emotional. So for me, you know, there's so many, as you know, we've written the book and it's loads of holistic therapies. But there are so many different therapies, but they're all based on energy because we're all energy. But we have different people have different protocols or different ways they do things. So some people like a certain protocol, like John did bioenergy. He trained in that. And to me, it was very there was a protocol for everything. Whereas Reiki for me was, oh, this is my way of doing it and facilitating it is I really listen to the person's energy and the, their person's energy dictates to me what is needed in that moment. Even if they came with a headache or a sore leg, there's something else going on. So I listen to the energy of what's going on and how you listen to it again is intuitively and you feel or sense where the energy is not flowing in the body. And again, that connects then to the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, you know, the different bodies of the aura around us. So again, you know, I, I won't get into the complicated parts of that side of it, but it's really about listening to the person's energy in that moment and what they need. And if we do that, you can really work on a deeper level with people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I suppose a question a lot of people have is when there are so many different of like types of holistic therapies and, you know, people will say, oh, that one doesn't work or that's, you know, that's rubbish or that's, you know, quack doctors or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think, though, that what's happened because, you know, Reiki and stuff, Japanese and these are very traditional things. Do you think that that people take these therapies and then make them their own and put new names on them. So do you know what I mean? How how does the how does the um, the normal Joe on the street, the civilian, how does he kind of say, well, do I go with that one because it's older or traditional? How do they know? Well, I, I don't think a lot of people do know because that's, as I said, one of the reasons we wrote the book was to give um, an introduction into the therapies, but also who the therapies have helped. And first of all, they've helped the therapists themselves in their own challenges and struggles. So they're speaking from experience, not just from a learned experience, but from a physical and mental and emotional experience. And then their clients have given testimonials of how it's helped them and in what conditions. So most of the therapies will help everything, okay? And they will be complementary to somebody that is going through, you know, a dis-ease in their body, their physical body or whatever, and they'll work well with conventional medicine. But for again, it's your preference. Some people will come to me and they'll say, oh, I had such and such a therapy and I didn't like it. I, you know, it wasn't for me, but maybe they weren't ready at the time. Because usually what happens is when somebody comes to an energy therapist, usually what works and usually what happens, I should say, is it brings up the deep rooted issues that you have hidden away from and that you may not have recognized are still triggering you, but in different ways throughout your life. 
So for me, when I'm working with somebody and I'll, they'll talk about this issue and I'll say, well, what happened five years ago? Because in five years ago, it's like your emotional center completely blocked out yeah. something. Yes. And then they'll go, oh, my God, they might have lost somebody. They might have had a physical accident, but it caused the shock and trauma of that and a fear. You know, it could be a relationship breakup, losing a job. You know, it suddenly it dawns on them. Oh, my God, I've been bad since that happened. And I never realized. Never realized that was the root cause of all of these other things happening down along the way. There's one thing, too, as well, I suppose, because everything we do in life is on a personal level and it's all about connections. So the thing is that you could maybe have a Reiki practitioner in one county or one town and maybe they don't connect with the person, whereas another Reiki practitioner could. Yes. Yes, it's again, it's like going to a counsellor, like lots of people stopped going to counselling because they didn't connect with the counsellor. And I would say to them, maybe that wasn't the counsellor for you, but try another one and maybe another one. Maybe you still need to find that counsellor that you can click with, you know, and um, same with therapists. Some people with doctors, you know, they say, I hate that doctor. Maybe that doctor just wasn't the right doctor for them, but don't give up. Try a different doctor or a different whoever. You know, we have to take, um, the power back in our own lives about what's right for us. And I was just doing an interview for my own podcast there and we, she was talking about, she said, um, information is power. Information is your power. It, you have to take responsibility to research, not just what somebody tells you. You have to do your own research and see what works best for you. So even though I might have loads of clients that love coming to me and the way I work, but I could have one that you come and go, I don't like any of that. You know, I just I don't want that. I just want something else. And that's OK. So at the moment, I have a whole bag of tools because I do clinical hypnotherapy as well to help them. And what you'll do is you will nearly find or design an individual program or plan for each client because it's not always going to be the same. If my client says, well, what happens in a session? I always laugh because I go, that depends on you. <laughs> now it's good because I can imagine when you started out, you know, you were you you probably knew some therapists and you, you said Mags there in Annabelle. But now, you know, so many more because now you network and you meet them. So if you have a case, I'm sure it's happened where you go, you know, I'm going to refer you to this person because that could happen. No. Oh, absolutely. I do that all the time. And sometimes people will ring me or message me and say they've got something going on or they meet need to be seen straight away. I may not have any appointments at all. So I will think who would work best with this person. And it's not because of their therapy, but on a personal level, sometimes I think that person would work best with such and such a client. So, yeah, I've often referred and I refer people constantly. It may not be me at all that they need to come see. I'm talking to myself out of business, but it's not it's not always about the business. You have to think about what's right for that person. Just because you do, it doesn't make it that everyone should see you. Yeah, And the thing is, I mean, you can feel that maybe there's a person who you don't connect with or they might connect better with somebody else. So that that's not so much, as you said, you know, killing your client list or anything. You're helping another person and you're also passing on the business. And then in turn, they'll 
pass on the business to you. Everything is energy. When you give, you receive. Everything is. That's what it is. It just goes around. (laughs) One question. Did you feel yourself changing as you met and dealt with clients? Like, did it did it make you become a different person after a few months of doing it? Um, Yeah, I think my confidence grew probably even from the start when I started off doing uh, my meditations and opening up to little groups around the table. And that's where I met most of the therapists, believe it or not, was they used to come to my meditation groups. The word of mouth just spread and they used to come. And it was it was because there wasn't there probably was circles around, but we didn't hear about them very often. So because, again, where do you advertise? So I used to just tell people, you know, if anybody wants to come, they're welcome to come. And next thing, the circle started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And next thing I was in a centre in Galway with a whole room full of people. And again, that was a process. It didn't happen overnight. But it's like it energetically built because somebody said, oh, I went to this girl and she's helping me to not. It's not just meditate. It's getting in touch with yourself. She's helping me to heal with things that have happened in my past or things that are going on now. Or it could be just help them to get to a really rough patch, whether it's in their life, their relationship, career, wherever it is. And it just seemed to be helping more and more people. So that's where I met all the therapists. So I suppose my confidence grew in myself because I started going. At the start, I was going, oh, but sure, why would anyone come to me? You know, you didn't have that belief in yourself as much. No. I, all I want, I knew that whatever I knew, I wanted to share it with somebody else because I didn't want anybody to be in that same position I had been in and feel like nobody understood. So I just thought, I'm just going to open the door and see who comes. And my intention was let people come that are always going to be here for their highest good and for my highest good. And it was a very simple intention. And I must say of all the years that I've been working with so many people, they have always been here for their highest good and my highest good. There has never been anybody that has been any way bad, if you want to put it that way. You know, everyone has been very open. They want to learn. They want to heal. And they, in turn, want to share with people as well. So, yes, I became more confident. I still get a little bit anxious when I have to talk in front of a group. Um, I still get a bit nervous when I'm meeting new people. And that's natural now. I accept that. That's part of, you know, my body preparing to do something new and meet new people. That's a very natural response for the body. Um, now it's I, be, I not only believe in myself, but I believe in the power of giving what you know to somebody else to help them create a better life well, for well, themselves that's what that I really word believe. like that it's a big word is facilitator because it doesn't matter if it's teaching somebody how to fix a chair or teaching them how to fix their life the thing is if you can show them the tools to he- to let them help themselves yeah that's a big skill no oh the biggest skill and again i think that was part of it. we didn't have those skills given to us you know, maybe when we were younger, there wasn't that awareness. But now, as I said, there is. But there still needs to be more. We still need to educate ourselves in listening to our body, listening to our thoughts and feelings, knowing how to let them flow, you know, not getting overwhelmed, not, you know, knowing about our thought process and what the subconscious holds on to. And as I said, the mind believes everything we tell it on a daily basis. So that was my post today on Instagram. I was like, well, what are you telling your mind on a daily basis? Listen to your thoughts, be aware of it. And if you catch yourself in the middle of just nothingness, you'll usually hear yourself giving out to yourself that you're not good enough, that you didn't do that right, that it should have been different. 
you know, why didn't you wear that? You look ridiculous. But isn't it mad? Well, well, that's now, what people you know, say. The problem is now because we, we've kind of in this social media pool and the problem is now that rather than people being more confident, I feel that sometimes we're in the next few years, we're going to have a lot of people with a lot of social anxieties because they they feel that the only way they can be happy is by, you know, having these posts on Instagram and TikTok. And that's their only way of releasing themselves. And especially in living in a virtual world, because people can seem very outward and extroverted, but deep down are very lonely. Oh, yeah. That's why I talk about the isolation. It's not just because of lockdown and restrictions, but there's many people, as you said, they have millions of followers on TikTok or Instagram. But then they don't when they sit by themselves, there's nothing without this approval from outside. And it's lovely to get that approval. And if they're doing something marvelous for the world, it's great to get that approval and recognition. But do you approve and recognize yourself when you're sitting alone in your bed at 12 o'clock at night and there's nobody liking and approving you? You know, there was an ad out there. It was so funny. It was like you're walking up the road and strangers pass and go, you know, oh, I like your outfit. Oh, I like that you're eating dinner or I like, you know, it's crazy. There was a Black Mirror episode, that TV show, and it was basically that if you didn't get so many likes on social media, that it was very hard to live your life. And this is the thing. I, I think in the future, you will have social media addiction counselors that will that will help people who cannot withdraw from that world or cannot live in the normal world. Yeah, because again, it's becoming normal for some people. There's a generation that have grown up with social media. Now, I must say my two are not they Snapchat, they're friends, you know, but they're not TikTokers, they're not Instagrammers really, and they've never really done Facebook, Twitter, they read things out. So I said to them, well, is that kind of normal? And like Matthew, my eldest said, well, if you are going to put yourself out there in social media, you have to be ready to be criticized. So I prefer not to be criticized, so I put myself out there. So anybody that does put themselves out there Remember, there is 500,000 other people out there that are quick to judge you. So why put yourself out to be judged if you're afraid of being judged or you don't want to be physically criticized about your dress or your hair or whatever? It's like a big social media talent competition, isn't it, really? Yeah, absolutely. So if you have a real story to tell, like there is loads of young people that have a great story to tell or they're sharing, they're singing and they're doing lovely voices, you know, and whatever. And funny things. I love the funny things on TikTok. The content creators, they make up these funny things and I could laugh all day at it. That's interesting, but not just someone sitting no, there. miming. Yeah, or miming. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, yeah, it's just like, well, you might have five million followers, but what will you be remembered for? You know, what do you want legacy? Yeah, what legacy do you want to leave the world? You know, this is short-lived and beauty is short-lived for people. So it, again, they're young for some of them. But what is it you, for me, it's like, well, what would I like my legacy to be when I left? You know, and it's not about what I did, but it's maybe who I helped. And maybe they created something important because of a step up you helped them or somebody else gave them along the way to empowering themselves to believe that they had something of value in this world. That's what I had to find within myself was find a place of value 
for myself in this world. And I always say, if I find that in myself, I'm going to help somebody else to find it in them. And then I've done a good job. Yeah, before I move, I want to talk about your book. But before I move on to us, um, do, do you have any like funny stories or incidents that ever happened to you with clients or anybody that you were like, this is weird or this is the, do, do you have any stories you can remember? Well, I'm sure, well see, we were very, <laughs> it was very deep and profound. Yes, of course, but I'm sure, I, I'm no. sure, I'm sure what happens is even in moments where people are, very emotional and very sad, I'm sure there can be funny moments, no? Oh, yeah. Well, we used to always laugh. And then I made a point of saying it at the start. You know, obviously, if we're in a meditation circle and I would be usually guiding, but there's lots of space where we have silence because you're going deep within and you need to have that time. And some people would be very afraid of coughing in the middle of a silence, you know, and then usually the, the phones might go off, you know, and things like that. And everyone has checked their phone, but now their phone goes off. But I open my eyes, look around, and no one's acknowledging the phone. <laughs> but you know where it's coming from. It's the person that... It's like farting in yoga class. <laughs> well, I was just going to say that the phone ringing, of course, that's a distraction. But I used to always say, that's life. You know, you can't go, go through life without distractions, but you can always bring yourself back to you. So they would get over that. But yes, often there's been things maybe and we bring people on weekend retreats and it's lots of silence and quiet and whatever. And there could be stretching and anything. And the farts are, you know, one of those things you can't stop from coming out of your bottom. Yeah. And then it's embarrassed and the, we're like kids and everyone starts roaring, yeah. laughing and you can't stop. And I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it the, the thing is, isn't it, you know, if you're telling your body to relax and you're telling your body, you know, be, be at one with the universe. And uh, the farts are thinking, I want to come out too. <laughs> well, yeah, the farts are always welcome. So I always say now at class, as I said, if you want to cough, fart or sneeze, just let it happen. Because the more you're trying to hold it in, it's like everything in life, what you re resist will persist. <laughs> and it'll be 10 times louder. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So when you, uh, someone please help me. So I did. Actually, I, I was looking at this today, actually, even the title and something I was thinking about when you brought it out. Would you pronounce it? Someone please help me. So I did. Or would you pronounce it? Someone please help me. So I did. Second way. The second way. Yeah. Because I always wonder that. So it's like you emphasize the fact I did it Absolutely. myself. And again, it's not that I did it myself. I'm brilliant. But it was that I, again, had to choose. I wanted to live. You know, it wasn't somebody saying you need to be put in an institution and looked after and we're going to force you to live now. It was I chose to live. And that word, someone please help me. So I did. They're the words. And I, I often hear myself saying it sounds it sounds strange, but that's what I screamed silently to myself. Someone please help me because I thought I had to be saved. I thought someone was going to have to come and save me because I wasn't strong enough to do it. And as I said, nobody came and saved me. And it was the next day I decided I was going to save myself. That was a huge moment in my life, but it was a huge moment in my mind, changing that narrative to waiting for someone to help me. So as such, when you brought out the book, was it a hard thing to start? Um, well, yeah, the book was um, an accumulation of my diaries over the years. And that's, and as I always say, I started writing it for my own healing. Um, it wasn't going to be a book, you know, it wasn't going to be out and published. 
but then um again something inside of me said you know this needs to go out there not because it's my story because it might help others you know share or speak about what they went through and not try and hide it and go through the same things so I had a huge big horrible book of awful things that happened throughout my life and but where I was at the time um was I don't want that all to go out because that's not who I am anymore. You know, I've healed so much through it. So I did share the experiences and the traumas, but in a different way, in a more positive light, you know, to say that, you know, there was a huge amount of acceptance and there was a huge amount of forgiveness and there was a huge amount of letting go. Whereas if I start, when I started writing, it was Fuck them and everybody's fault. And why did I have to go through this? But but it was another form of release, wasn't it? I mean, absolutely a huge form. So writing for me is huge, and I always encourage all of my clients and everybody to write as much as possible as they can that they're able to, you know, and see. Then it's clearer for them what their thoughts and feelings are on this one thing, you know, not on everything, but just on one thing that they're holding on to. And once they see how clear it is, they understand then maybe what do they still have anger towards that situation or person. You know, what do they really need to heal? It mightn't be the whole 10 years of their life. It might be just one issue or one person. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's really important for kids. You know, my own daughter, Cassie, she has her diary and stuff. And my little boy, David, doesn't do that yet. But I think it's like, as you said, if you're 20 and you look back at a memory when you were 10, you have a different kind of outlook on it. But if you actually read the diary that you wrote when you were 10, it's very real and it could be very visceral and everything. But the point is you go, oh, I looked at it in a different way, but I just found my diary and it actually was a little different, either worse or better. Yeah, well, that's the thing, you see. If I, That's why I kept diaries all as a child as well. And if I look at them now, I don't have them anymore. I got rid of them because they don't ring true to me anymore. But if I looked at them as I did years ago, I looked at them, all I felt was the pain of that child or teenager. Yeah, yeah. But I was still feeling the pain of it as an adult before, you know, I found my own healing and self and all of that. But now if I read them, I kind of laugh because they are so big and so full of pain. And it's so everything is so big because it was big for the child or teenager that I was that time. But as an adult, it's not that's not my focus on in life anymore. That was then. But if I'm still continuing to see it in the same way as an adult, then I truly haven't healed. You're not separating yourself from the child and adult. You're still going back to that childhood place and seeing it as this huge, big thing that has taken over your life. When you were releasing the book, the first book, were you scared? Were you thinking, what are people going to think of this book? And and were you, you know, was the the part of you that lacked confidence, was that thinking, oh, no, I can't release this or because, you know, people will hate it. How did you feel? Yeah, I was never worried about people hating it. That didn't come into me. I what it really felt like um, are people ready to hear this because I had worked with um, lots of people at that stage because it was published in 2018. So I was 10 years in practice at that stage and people had a perception of me, even though I would share a lot of my story with people. This was in black and white, as my best friend Denise said, I know your story. I know every part of it. But to see it written in print, she said it made it so real. And it's like you could put you could nearly see you as the child or see you as that young adult going through it. 
And she said it made it very different, she said, in a way. So I knew people reading a story. It's very different than watching it on telly, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Well, I, I think the the mediums of, you know, of books and song and music and art and everything, you can know somebody. But, for example, if they write a song or write a book or anything, then you see another side to them. And then maybe you go, oh, th I know that story, but I didn't look at it that way. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of what I, maybe maybe it was a fear. Well, it was a fear probably um, of what people would think of me and maybe judge me a little bit. Um, I didn't think anyone had hated. I just I didn't want anyone to feel sorry for me, Simon. Yeah, that was yeah, it. yeah. I really did not want to be a victim any longer. And that was one thing I, you know, I said that I survived, but I'm not a survivor. I'm a thriver. I did not want to be seen as a victim in any way. That doesn't take away from people that call themselves survivor. You know, I always say that, but that's the only way I could think in my mind, because if I was survivor, I was still trying to survive the trauma that I'd gone through and I wasn't surviving anymore. I was thriving. I was living my best life and I, I didn't survive a Holocaust, you know, they, they survived things. I, I didn't. There was a big difference for me in my mind. But again, I'm not taking away from anybody that does call themselves a survivor for whatever reason. But for me, I had a mental process. And if I stuck to the word survivor, it felt like I was still surviving the trauma. And I wasn't surviving it. I was out of it. It was long gone from my life. Yeah, it was in your rearview mirror. Absolutely. I was a completely different person now on all levels. So when I put the book out there, I was what I was afraid of as well is that it would trigger other traumas for people that they had gone through. But would they be able to deal with it after reading the book? Because I remember reading books over the years and sometimes it would really trigger the most painful things for me. And I didn't know what to do with the information then. I had to try and process it in my own mind. And I was lucky because I had meditation and all of that and writing. But my fear was if somebody read my story and it triggered all of their painful memories, what would they do? So that's why I brought out a guidance and gratitude journal with it. And there's a part where there is guidance and it's on acceptance or letting go or forgiveness, a little affirmation. And there's a question and where they can write their own thoughts and feelings. So they've some way of releasing it or trying to process it. Because I still wanted there to be something for the person that was reading it other than just my story. I wanted them to have a tool. It's giving them truths that could be home truths for them. But then rather than just saying, here you are, you deal with it. Afterwards, they might need your help and how to deal with it. Yes. So that's why I gave because I knew I couldn't see everybody that read my book, you know, if they chose to. So I had the journal as part of that when the when the book was published, that it would be part of it. Not, you know, you could buy it or not buy it. But most people bought it. And one girl said to me it was actually life saving because when she read my book, she said it, it affirmed everything that she had gone through in her own life, that she wasn't alone and that she was finally able to shed the real tears, the outward tears for what she'd went through in her life. And the journal gave her the opportunity to write her own truths down, she said. Yeah. OK, that's great. Yeah, because I was I was thinking that I, I just had that question in my mind. Did you ever get like feedback from any readers or, or, or people? Not even you mightn't have known them that said how it changed their lives. Oh, my God. So many. 
as I said, that shocked me more than anything was the response I got from people all over the world. You know, I thought a few of my friends and people had read yeah, the book, yeah, yeah. but it just went everywhere and it's still selling, which is amazing. That's great. Um, yeah, because it is, it's a timeless story, obviously, because it's about humanity. It's about us going through our struggles and finding ways to survive and bringing the best of joy into our lives in whatever way we can. So, yeah, it's still going out there, but yeah, yeah, people are great. So then let's say move on to, you know, 2019, 2020 and the, the thoughts for the next book. Were you thinking, OK, I, I want to do another book, but were you not sure or were you very sure what direction you were going to go with it? Um, well, yes, at the time of my first book being published, like I said, so many people contacted me and I thought, well, I can't see you all. So there's the journal. But I still can't see the rest of you, but I can recommend you and refer you to other people, which I still can't help everybody. And I, mm. again, I wanted the awareness to go out a bit further. So an idea came into my head one night and it was, you know, there should be more, you know, there should be more options. There should be more awareness. And I said, you know, keep this idea and come back to it. So at the start of March this year, when we had the lockdown and obviously we couldn't see our clients, I'd set up the wellbeing support group freely on Facebook, but I still wanted to help more people because I realized there was more people struggling. So I contacted all of my lovely, fabulous therapist friends and I invited them and said, would you be interested in writing a chapter in a book about wellbeing, explaining what you went through in your life, the therapies that helped you and what therapies you now are helping others with. Yeah. And um, yeah, so 13 other therapists came on board with me and the book became Awaken Your Wellbeing, Transformational Stories of Courage, Hope and Healing. And that was launched on the 1st of November here virtually live on Facebook. Yeah. And um, that has gone all over the world already. Wow, that's brilliant. And uh you know, was it a case for you that you felt that your second book would be similar to the first or did you always feel, no, it should be different? I didn't really know because when I wrote the first book, I thought, that's it now. I have my story out there. I don't need to do another thing ever again. But of course, I do love writing. It's a form of therapy for me. Um, if I'm putting up posts, you know, I always write a little story with it at times. And I have started two other books. And this really, the this one we've just published now, Awaken Your Wellbeing, which all um, prophets are going to go always time in community. It was something we could give back as therapists, you know, as I said, again, it's the sharing of knowledge, sharing of information, of energy. So something we could give back. And I felt like it was more important in our society at the moment, especially because of lockdown and isolation and what's coming, because Lockdown and restrictions, it's not just over when they say the restrictions are lifted. We have another way of living now, you know, and it's the fear, as you said, of coming into lockdown maybe again in the new year. And what's life going to be like? And will I ever be able to travel home to my family or will I be able to ever do anything I used to do? Like not to mention, you know, we're we're going into this uh, a recession. So the thing is, this is going to have such knock on effects and implications for people who maybe lose their home, who people who lose their jobs, have no food for their kids. And, you know, it all comes around to this circle of suicide, homelessness, all of these things. So probably in the next few months or the next few years, 
we're going to see all these effects and it's not going to be that good. So people will need more help than ever. Yeah. So in the book, this new book, Awaken Your Wellbeing, it's given them tools to deal with issues arising, even if they're on their own. They don't have to find a therapist there in the spot. Like I've asked each of the therapists to give little things that you can do in your daily life even in the middle of restrictions, you know, you can do them anytime. But it's an ongoing practice to becoming more aware of yourself, what works best for you, what doesn't work, what you need to change, you know, what you need to bring into your life, what you need to let go of in your life. You know, it's you being responsible for the way you live your life. And that we each have that power. We don't need anyone to give us permission to do that as adults, but even that we can teach our children, you know, that, to understand, you know, more about their mind-body connection. That breathing is our greatest gift, not just to be alive physically, but breathing, I always call it our anchor back to ourselves. So when I take a notice of my breath and I bring that awareness into me, I'm anchoring myself back into me, into my body and into my present moment. So it stops you from running off into the anxiety or back into the past, the depression. It brings you back here into this moment where everything is okay. Brilliant. Yeah, that's great. And so uh, the book Awaken Your Wellbeing and is it, available online mainly or can you buy it like in bookstores if they're open, obviously? Yeah, obviously because there's nothing open at the moment and we're asking everybody that lives local to shop in kennys.ie or charlieburns.ie, which are two local bookshops in Galway. And they are delivering now. You can order them online and they deliver them. And on it's on Amazon again because we've lots of international readers, thank goodness. And um, that's going all over the world. So you can get it on paperback, hardback or Kindle on Amazon. We're going to put the link in the, at the bottom of the podcast when we launch it. Let's look at some of your charity work. You know, uh, you were mentioning there um, the Simon community, but you've done work with uh, multiple sclerosis and aware.ie and everything. Tell us a little about that. Okay. So, um, well, we're going to the community, obviously the book now at the moment, all profits are going to that. And as therapists, we all want to give something back. And as you just said a few moments ago, Simon, that homelessness is not just about the people on the street, that this, these restrictions, lockdown, financial issues, all of that is going to affect, unfortunately, most of the population of the world in the next year or two to come. And Galway Simon community are about preventing homelessness, not just supporting it, but preventing it. So say like that, we're a family living in our lovely house, nice, warm comforts, but two of us have lost our job. We can't afford to pay our mortgage. So Galway Simon community step in and they try and help you. They work with you and your financial, you know, and whoever you're going with um, to try and keep you in your home. Because the minute you get out of your home and you go into the emergency shelters or whatever their accommodations is, you stay longer and longer and longer in that system. It gets harder and harder to get out of the system. So they want to keep you out of the system for as long as possible if they can. But of course, they need money and resources to do that. So, yes, that's why they would be my top for, you know, giving back to. And obviously, I started with them over seven years ago when I decided I'd sleep out in the back garden in my sleeping bag and um, just do one thing. Again, I was only one person. Can I can I do one thing? Well, I can and I can raise a few hundred euro. That's brilliant. And now it has become their largest community fundraiser and they raised over 124,000 this year. And that was from people all over the west of Ireland also sleeping out in their sleeping bags in their gardens or in their sheds or 
kids in their tents at home. And you know, there was a time I slept out on your hammock with my dog. Remember that? <laughs> That's right. I do remember that. that was, <laughs> I don't think you got no, any money for that was, time. That wasn't for any charity. I think I was a little drunk and there, was, there wasn't as many beds. And I said, I'll be fine on the hammock with the dog, you know. But I, I should do it again for the Go Assignment community, you know. <laughs> And we don't, you stepped on the um, trampoline, not even the hammock. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know why I was thinking hammock. It was a trampoline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very so, funny. So that's good. And then with AWARE, tell us about your work with AWARE. Well, AWARE, again, was another charity um, that, you know, I had seen lots of work by as well. And I always try and help a few, but AWARE was one that I decided I would help. And I re did a, mindfulness and motivation seminar and we sold tickets and all the tickets that were sold the money went to aware to help them and it was a day in a hotel in mayo people came from all over male and female and we had different speakers like marion trench and laura burke um i can't remember who else was in it but everybody came and spoke and it was based on like nutrition you know, health and awareness, but really it was about how to be mindful within ourselves, how to motivate ourselves every day. And I'm not talking about running a marathon now or running a company. It was motivating yourself to get out of bed and to be mindful of your self-talk, to be mindful of how you eat, to be mindful to hydrate, to be mindful to put on your runners and go for a walk. The very simple things that lead to the big things. So that was a great success. We had a brilliant day and it was only that day. And we said, yeah, we'll do it again. Um, haven't got around to that yet, but we'll do it again some other time. Multiple cirrhosis. Um, one of the ladies, um, Josephine Regan, I would have met her when I facilitated a group down in Ballandine in County Mayo. And Josephine would have been the participants there, a lovely lady. I've known her for years. And Josephine has MS. So she's obviously involved with the MS Society in Tume. And she asked me, would I come and do some mindfulness evenings with her group? And they were absolutely amazing people. I had a great connection with them. And I worked with them for a few weeks. But I was going to do the Camino probably for my first year ever. And I realized that many of the people in this group would never get the opportunity to walk the Camino because of the physical issues they had you know, around walking or just fatigue or medication or all of these things. So I thought, well, maybe I'll walk it for them. And while I'm walking it for them intentionally, maybe I will raise some money for them. So I did four Caminos or three Caminos. I can't remember. Did I do four for them? I think maybe three. Three Caminos and I raised funds for the MS Society, Multiplicerosis Society which they put into their well-being program so you see it always benefits that's what i said i was improving my well-being as i was walking the camino you wouldn't have thought that afterwards yeah. because i was physically wrecked after walking hundreds of kilometers but it was going back into their well-being program that was helping them to realize just because their physical issue was going through this you know that they didn't have to they could put their energy into their mind, their mental or emotional, that they could find ways to bring balance. And again, found some kind of control or power in their lives, you know, to bring a little bit of joy. Did you have plans to do it this year? Uh, yes. Um, it, it seems like such a long time ago at the start of this year. Um, yes, I had plans to go and also do um, other walks as well. 
They've all gone out the window. They've all gone out the window. Yeah, but that's okay. Um, I did a walking challenge for um, Galway Mountain Rescue at the start of these last six weeks. And again, it was only whatever, 18 or 19 or 20 kilometers. But again, it was to raise money for Galway Mountain Rescue. And you had to do a certain amount of kilometers every day. So it motivated me to get up and walk. And plus, I knew it was going back into Galway Mountain Rescue. Yeah. So I like those kind of challenges. Of course, you know, lots of people probably had to cancel their plans for doing the, the Camino. But the thing is, maybe next year, who knows, maybe you can get back into it. What would you consider your greatest achievement in your own opinion? Greatest achievement, I would always say, is my children. Your children. OK. Tell us about your family, John and the kids. Tell us about them. Okay, so I'm married to John from County Roscommon. He was born in London. Um, his parents are from Galway, but living in Roscommon. But they all still kind of associate with being Galway. And um, I met John um, in the midst of my darkest days, believe it or not. And I truly believe that his light helped me to see and recognize my own light because he's such a good person, so loving and so selfless in so many ways. And my children then, Matthew is 21, the end of January, and Scott is 19 since September. So it doesn't seem that long ago since they were both small babies and going to school, and years do go really quickly. Um, but as I look at them, I see parts of me and John in them. I often hear myself and John in them when they speak, Sometimes I don't like it because it might be something I would have said for years. But I think they are. And I always said and my kids were my greatest teachers because they, even because I did go through a bad patch again when my kids were younger and I didn't reach the low that I had reached, you know, in when I was 24. But I did reach a, a very shaky period of my time where I could feel myself slipping back and I had lost a child in 2004 so that was, again, it triggered off a huge amount for me. And the only thing that really motiva motivated me every single day was my children to keep going, to keep getting better, to try and pull myself out as much as possible. And some days I was fighting. I was fighting to pull myself up. You know, there was often evenings John had come home and I would be sitting in the dark with the kids asleep, you know, because I couldn't even turn on the light, you know. There, there, there was lots of things, but I held on so tightly to my kids because they were the only things keeping me safe, I felt at times. They were your lifeline. They were my lifeline, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, they're amazing and uh, both still living at home. Matthew moved out for a little while and wants to move out again. And I would be delighted to see him go and start <laughs> his life again. Yeah, yeah, second, second chance, <laughs> yeah. To do that. Yeah, and Scott's, Scott's just started his first year in college doing engineering. And he may move into town in a year or next year, maybe if whatever. They'll he all uh, escape the nest or fly the nest. They will. Say. Yeah. And they'll, and as a friend of mine said, they'll come back again. They leave and come back and they leave and come back. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, children never truly leave. They keep coming back, you know, no, because absolutely. they'll have their own tough moments in life and they'll have moments when they need mom and dad, whether it be through losing jobs or through lack of money. But that's what parents are there for, you know, isn't it? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I've learned is I would have always thought that our children need us more when they're small, you know, or younger. And um, obviously they do up to the age where they walk and you have to feed them and all of that. 
and then they go to school and they become more independent. But I think actually now that I have adults, young adults, I believe our children need us more as teenagers. That's when they pull away from you. They become more isolated. They, you know, start to rebel against you. But the one advice I always say to people is just be there. Even if they hate you in that moment, just let them know you're there. Just be always there as their support if they need you or they choose to. But it's sometimes hard because that's what it's like. Everyone's clashing heads. But I truly believe that's when they need you the most is that's when they're teenagers. Brilliant. That's brilliant. And so moving forward, what is next for Sharon Fitzmaurice? Well, I have no clue. I was I was on another podcast, Simon and Andrea Splendor. He asked me the same question. And I really don't have a big, huge plan in place. But if again, and people say they don't work like that, I do. If I come up with an idea or inspiration, I'm usually quite spontaneous about it because I might talk myself out of it otherwise. So I, it's like I say, I say yes to it and worry about the details later. But that's what I've done with my own podcast. So at the moment, I'm, I'm like you, I love having conversations with people, hearing more about their stories. So I'm really enjoying that process. You know, I don't know, will I continue or not? But right now it's great. I would um, like to write another book or two and go into a little bit more about the work that I do. Um, so, yes, I'd love to do that. I want to do loads more walking weekends. If I can give back to any of the charities, absolutely, I will. Um, what else would I like to do in the future? I don't know. I'm open. I said that I'm very open to opportunities. I keep my heart open. I don't set it on this is what I need to do because... Because then I think you miss out on all the good things that are this side because you're so you're a blinkers on just trying to get there. But you miss out on all the good things either side. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Nobody knows what's coming. And, you know, it's like the opportunities arise sometimes from the things you're doing. And you might never put yourself on that path. But then when it happens, you go, oh, well, I never thought about that. But that could be quite interesting. And I mean, that's the whole idea, isn't it? You're you're I think you always have to be open to new ideas and new challenges. No, for sure. And just as you said there, Simon, you know, it's that um, along the way, it'll lead you to something else. And that's exactly what I always say. Because if somebody told me back in 2000 and whenever, or even in 1994 or whenever it was, that you would be doing this in 2020, working with people, have books published, you know, do a podcast, even though you haven't a clue, I would have thought that was the strange, no way I, that you wouldn't have a clue. But everything you've done and I've done for myself to better myself and then to help others, it has led me on to the next thing and to the next thing. So that's it. So if you're following your heart and you're following your passion, it will automatically open up the next opportunity. So you don't always have to know what it is. No. And you, you have to be happy. You know, that's the thing. It's um, it's like I always think now, you know, I I stopped playing music for a while and now I've kind of got back into it. And now I'm just doing it for myself. I mean, I was always doing it for myself. But, you know, the thing is, you're you're always trying to sell something in your previous years. You're You're trying to market yourself. And now I'm kind of like whatever I do that makes me happy and it, it's enough i don't need to you know people could say oh you need to do more but i think you need to do what makes you happy and you know this is the point just do it enough to be you can be very ambitious but do it that it makes you happy and don't stress over yeah and i think that's so right and i think that's one thing our pe young people have to learn is you know because they're doing everything to get somewhere to get to college to get this to get everything and maybe that's a lesson you learn in life but maybe as you become a bit older you decide 
you know what? I'm only going to do what makes me happy now, you know, and if it makes me happy, everything else seems to work out alongside of it instead of forcing it. Of course. And it, it falls into place. So listen, um, I, I, before we let you go, I'm going to say we'll put all the relevant links below for your books, the two books, uh, your website and your podcast as well, which I urge everyone to listen to because it's really interesting and kind of gets into some really you know, deep issues and things that affect a lot of people. The the two I've listened to so far now are really good. And they're, you know, I think for anybody, it doesn't matter if it's a podcast where people are laughing or people are crying. The point, if you can learn something from it and take something away, that's all you need. So Sharon, listen, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And I know you're my sister and I'm very proud of you. And I think you've done wonderfully and you've come through your troubles and your, you know, deep, rooted problems in the past that kind of made you who you are today so all i can say is well done and best of luck in the future with your future endeavors and thanks very much for coming on the show and thank you simon i'm so proud of you as well <laughs> and you look lovely with headphones <laughs> <Thank you very. laughs> <laughs> nobody will ever see us <laughs> uh, so so thanks a lot sharon and um thank you very much for everybody for listening and we'll tune in to the next show and we'll talk to you soon take care bye bye okay everybody i hope you enjoyed the show and that was sharon fitzmaurice all the way from curfin next week's guest is martina flaherty from loch ray martina is a singing teacher a sound and voice therapist and facilitator a professional singer songwriter and musician and also a radio presenter on loch ray community radio so we're looking forward to that one and martina comes and has a bit of a chat with us and she plays a little music as well so i hope you're going to enjoy that so until then Take care and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.